Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The Hill reports Presidents Xi and Biden are to speak as possible Pelosi-Taiwan visit looms. U.S. President Joe Biden is planning to speak with his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping for the first time in four months. That right there speaks volumes. With a wide range of bilateral and international issues on the table. But a potential visit to Taiwan by, by Speaker of the House Pelosi is looming over the conversation set for tomorrow with China warning of a severe response if she travels to the self-governing island uh, democracy Beijing claims as its own territory. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's an author and professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University, Dr. Ken Hammond. As always, Ken, welcome back. It's good to be here. So I find this very interesting because uh, it is reported that today— China's foreign ministry declined to comment on the presidential phone call. However, spokesperson Zhao Lijian reiterated China's warnings over a Pelosi visit. Quote, if the U.S. insists on going its own way and challenging China's bottom line, it will surely be met with forceful purposes. All ensuing consequences shall be borne by the U.S. So, Dr. Hammond, they're saying, I'm not going to comment, but here's my comment. I'm kicking your behind. Uh, that's what I take away from all of that. I need a greater mind than mine. Dr. Ken Hammond. Well, I don't know if I can fill that role, but uh, in any case... You know, I think the Chinese have made their position pretty clear. They've they've made statements repeatedly about, uh, you know, the need for the United States to behave responsibly, to respect its international commitments, to respect the bilateral agreements between the United States and China, and to actually behave in a, in line with its rhetoric, its formal recognition of the one uh, China policy. And the, uh, you know, the going all the way back to the Shanghai communique in 1972, the State Department uh, just uh, yesterday issued a, 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 a comment on all this. They wouldn't respond specifically about uh, Speaker Pelosi's uh, renegade plans, but they did say that it is the uh, official position of the United States to uh, maintain its commitment to the one China policy, and that policy recognizes Taiwan as uh, as part of China. So, you know, we find ourselves once again in a situation where the Chinese are being very, very consistent. They're saying the same thing, uh, and they've said it enough. You know, it's it's not exactly say something once, why say it again? But they've certainly made their position clear enough that they don't need to respond to every single uh, moment. On the other hand, we have the Americans who are apparently wandering around in a fog in the White House, uh, where, uh, 
you know, on, on one day they say, oh, well, the Pentagon is concerned about this. The United States military is concerned about this, doesn't think it's a good idea. And yet no comment from Speaker Pelosi's office. The president just says, I don't know what's really going on. And we find ourselves with a very jumbled situation, a very dangerous, reckless situation, and one which apparently American politicians aren't taking very seriously, except, of course, for uh, an interesting chorus of voices from what is normally thought of as the other side in American politics, uh, you know, right wing uh, Republicans who are saying, you know, hey, Nancy, let me go along. You know, let's let's all do this together. How great that we can finally find something to work together on. So it's a it's a very messy situation here, uh, quite in contrast to China's, you know, very consistent uh, statement of of its position and its commitments. You know, here's the way I see it, Ken, from through the through the lens of great power politics. There are three great powers, three world powers, Russia, China, and the US. And one of the, those great powers has crept up to the border of the other two and is pumping the border countries of the other two with weapons and rhetoric and all kinds of stuff. And one of them has already said, this ain't happening. You're getting off our border and we will blow you the heck off of our border. And it is inevitable in the same way that if Russia and China started pumping Mexico full of weapons and building uh, 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 bases. bases and all that kind of stuff that the U.S. would attack, what is going to happen if Nancy Pelosi goes there? I don't think she comes back alive. So I kind of hope she fills her plane with the rest of these idiots. So if we're all going to go, at least they're the first. If things, if, if things get seriously dicey, you know, one one would hope that Mike Pompeo and uh, <laughs> John Bolton, those guys would be on the plane with her. But, um, you know, I don't think the Chinese are likely to to quite go so far as to, uh, you know, taking her out. But I think that they, uh, you know, they certainly would be well within their rights to make it quite clear that if Taiwan is part of China, which is the official American government position, that they have a right to, you know, exercise some control over what goes on in that airspace. I saw something else in another source that uh, said that uh, uh, there may be a move to have her not fly in but be transported uh, by naval uh, vessels from American bases in Okinawa. Uh, you know, and that would be a very interesting uh, situation as well, uh, crossing the high seas and, you know, who knows what one might encounter out there. Nancy in a rubber raft. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that could be interesting, you know. And we know that some of those old charts uh, you know, used to say, here be dragons, you know. So we'll, we'll find out what uh, what what goes on with all that. But I do think that it's uh, you know it's it, it, the Chinese have certainly uh, enhanced their capabilities, uh, and I think that they're they're you know they're prepared. I don't think, as I say, I don't think they really want to precipitate something as drastic as you know shooting down her airplane or something like that. But these kinds of situations can be so volatile. And, you know, the slightest little miscalculation, and, and on the American side, who knows if it would even be a miscalculation, the slightest provocation across a red line, you know, can have very, very dramatic consequences that apparently no one on this side is taking very seriously. So not to belabor the point, but to belabor the point, if China goes as far as to declare a no-fly zone over Taiwan— 
and the United States decides to test that no-fly zone. And this is a question we've been asking on the show for the last couple of days. If China, instead of shooting down her plane, forces her to land, where do they force her to land? South Korea? Do they send her to Japan? Because if they force her down in China, then couldn't that be interpreted as China has now kidnapped the Speaker of the House, the third person in line to be president of the United States? Am I being too conspiratorial to to ask that question? No, I think it's a perfectly valid question because this is a this is a situation where there are so many things in play and so many things that that cannot be you know, specifically pinned down uh, in advance. It's a, it's a volatile situation. I, I see a number of uh, of people, especially our friend uh, KJ No, you know, talking about uh, it being a very kinetic situation. You mm-hmm. know, uh, that 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 the pieces are in motion, and we don't know how that's going to settle out. Uh, you know, I, at this point, I I'm reluctant to predict anything. Mm-hmm. Just because the range of outcomes is so wide, and some of them are so dire that uh, you know one really one really rather rather would prefer not to contemplate them. But I don't think it's it's beyond the realm of possibility for things to get pretty ugly very quickly. Should she can you know go ahead with with this this reckless kind of provocation? Well, the other thing, if I could get your comment on, is the economic situation. And that is, we're sitting here, you know, and we've been discussing, oh, my gosh, Germany's done. They're fried. They, you know, their their economy is is toast. And it's obvious the Germans are out there in a good bit of Europe is going to be, you know, just watch like The Walking Dead for a couple of weeks and you'll binge watch that and you'll get a pretty good idea of what Europe's going to look like this winter. That being said... This is our number one trading ally. They buy a lot of our stuff and we buy a lot of their stuff. And guess what? We'll be wandering around, you know, mumbling to ourselves in the event that they decide. What if they decide we're just going to do an economic war on the U.S.? We're not buying anything from them. We're not selling anything from them. Forget it. Until further notice, you guys are cut off and everything on our shelves comes from China. Uh, Your thoughts, Dr. Hammond? Well, it's not just the things on our shelves. Certainly, that's that's very true. And and as we know, uh, the ridiculous uh, uh, you know trade uh, tariffs and all that imposed by uh, uh, you know the the, the apparently criminal uh, predecessor of Biden, uh, you know which Biden has maintained and declined to uh, to uh, remove, have already inflicted serious damage on American consumers, on ordinary American people. And the, the potential for that, uh, for disruption in terms of trade, uh, of course, is immense if things go sideways, you know, around Taiwan. But the other thing to bear in mind, even though China has been repositioning itself a bit in this regard, trying to, um, you know, reduce its engagement on some levels, they still hold nearly a trillion dollars. That's with a T, a trillion dollars in U.S. Uh, foreign exchange, in American dollars. Um, and, you know, should they decide uh, to dump those on the international money markets, the dollar would collapse dramatically, which would devastate the American economy domestically, not to mention the fact that most of that trillion dollars is held in the form of treasury bonds that underpin the housing market in this country, which, as we know, can be a very volatile segment itself. So, 
you know, the, I mean, talk about shooting oneself in the foot. Uh, you know, the, the, in between the, the, the eyes. How about that? Well, that 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 too elevate them guns a little higher, boys. <laughs> you know, that's that's definitely where it's at. Uh, I think that that the potential, uh, even even for for a, a a clash that doesn't escalate into into really serious military conflict, but the economic devastation could be could be just uh, unbelievable. U.S. sends Sherman and Kennedy to visit the Solomon Islands. The U.S. is sending a high-profile diplomatic delegation to visit the Solomon Islands next week by Deputy Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman and including uh, Ambassador to Australia Caroline Kennedy. Is uh, is this kind of a a Trojan horse that the United States is is sending some folks out to? Well, I think— I think the the, the comments uh, that uh, that have been made uh, by by Ambassador uh, Kennedy and, and, and Deputy Secretary Sherman are very interesting because they've been uh, they've been talking about, for example, the idea that the U.S. is going to uh, reopen its embassy mm-hmm. uh, in the Solomon Islands, uh, and and uh, have been reassuring the Australians, for example, that we're back. We're going to take this seriously. We're sending the Peace Corps back. USAID is going to be active in the Pacific. You know, this is a remarkable admission in many ways of just how much the U.S. turned away from that whole region. You know, the U.S. was engaged in a number of parts of the world during the Cold War because it saw the uh, uh, the situation there as something that was in contention between the United States and the Soviet Union in those days. And then when the Soviet Union went down and, and, you know, we had this period in the 90s of all this this uh, end of history nonsense, it was in 1993 the U.S. closed that embassy. You know, they withdrew from the Pacific. They didn't really care about the people there. And so they shut down a lot of their operations there. Now, because China, you know, signed an agreement with the Solomon Islands, the government of the Solomon Islands, now suddenly – uh, this area is back on their radar screen. So this is this is obviously a, a, a an extremely cynical move on the part of the United States okay. uh, to try to go in and repurchase uh, the loyalty of people in that part of the world. Now, you know, if people down there want to play that and say, you know, OK, well, we'll flirt with China, we'll flirt with the Americans. That's up to them. They're free countries. They can do what they want. But they shouldn't be deceived that the United States actually cares about them. <laughs> right. And see this as anything other than, you know, kind of a kind of a sucker move. Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Always glad to be here. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Wall Street Journal reports Fed officials preparing to lift interest rates by another 0.75 percentage points, or three-quarters of a point. Policymakers are leaning against full-point increase despite June inflation surge. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tawheed. As always, sir, welcome back. 
Thank you. So Federal Reserve officials have signaled that they are likely to raise interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point later this month for the second straight meeting as part as an aggressive effort to combat high inflation. Quote, we knew this inflation report was going to be ugly, and it was. It was just uglier than we thought, said Mr. Waller. Uh, But he added, we don't want to make policy on one data point. And that's kind of a critical thing. So, Dr. Tahid, the Fed officials have raised interest rates at their three uh, past three meetings, beginning with a quarter point in March, a half point in May and three quarters of a point last month. And inflation still continues to rise. So at what point do they realize maybe raising the interest rate isn't the answer? Well, I think they are actually um, uh, not going to learn that lesson. Uh, oh. the, the Federal Reserve has So, so been, it's not me. No, no. The okay. Federal Reserve has been consistently going with the only weapon they have, which is to raise interest rates on inflation. Uh, this is what they're expected to do. This is what they are uh, have were designed to do, and this is what they do. And if inflation doesn't come down, and I don't expect that it will, uh, I will expect that the next uh, rate hike will be at at 1%. They already contemplated that this time, but they're, you know, gradually going up by a quarter percent each time. Uh, There will be other um, increases. They've already said that, uh, maybe as many as four uh, in the remaining uh, year in this year. And uh, the next one, that there will be uh, one point. Now, the, the in, in inflation, as we've talked on this program uh, many times before, this inflation is not a demand-driven inflation. It's a supply-driven inflation. And uh, the Federal Reserve's increasing interest rates can do uh, can can bring down demand. In fact, uh, they they've they've acknowledged in their in their um, uh, memo on the current rate hike that uh, spending has softened. So demand is down. Yet they've also said that job gains have been robust and the uh, the unemployment rate remains low at 3.6%. Uh, we've, we've talked about the fact that the unemployment rate as it is now, as it's structured now, does not give a good idea of what, un- of what employment is in this economy. Because if you are are partly uh, part-time employed, you are still considered, of course, unemployed. I mean, excuse me, employed. And so uh, when we have lots of uh, part-time jobs, uh, the unemployment rate is not going down, even though spending is softening, which which tells me that uh, as consumers are spending less, employers are cutting the hours of their current employees uh, and uh, to match that spending, but unemployment is not going down. And so the, the so the Fed is is relying on the unemployment rate to dictate what's going to happen with their interest rate hikes, and I don't think that's going to change. And so I expect continued interest rate hikes from the Fed. So uh, along with these uh, continuous interest rates hikes, I would expect our um, our uh, economy to flush right down the toilet. Do you think that as it becomes apparent within, you know, let's say six, seven months, that things are going in a very bad direction, that A, it's possible that they reverse course 
or B, that is in fact their intent for whatever reason. We could discuss that. That is in fact their intent. And well, let me ask you this. I, I can come up with some reasons why I would think they'd want to do it. But at any rate, your thoughts on that? Well, one, one reason that's being floated out there by, by some economists, including myself, is that uh, they want uh, to, to bring down uh, wages. Now, wages are not increasing. Wages are, have been flat. But, uh, but when you start to lay off employees or threaten to lay off employees, then they'll, they'll work for less. And so that, that could be an, an intended consequence of, of uh, raising the interest rates to cool down the, uh, the economy to bring uh, actual employment down. That, that's a, maybe a conspiracy theory. But, uh, but on the other hand, uh, uh, they only, the Fed only has one tool. If there's only one thing it can do. Uh, the federal government, the Biden administration, uh, is not able to do anything because they can't get past Joe Manchin's um, um, uh, vetoing, essentially, anything the Democrats would want to do to increase supply. And so since they, they can't get past the political issue in increasing supply to bring down inflation, the only thing that can be done is try to decrease demand, which not only decreases demand, but also increases supply. So it won't it won't stop inflation uh, in the first quarter of this year. Uh, GDP was down one point. It was not negative one point six percent. In the second quarter, uh, this is from the uh, Atlanta Fed, uh, GDP is expected to be down a negative 1.2%. Officially, by the official definition of a recession of two uh, contiguous uh, quarters of, of negative GDP growth, we are in a recession. Uh, the president, of course, uh, President Biden is saying, oh, no, no, a recession is not going to happen. Uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen is saying we're not in a recession and redefining what a recession is. So, so the politics is they're going to deny uh, that the economy is slowing down. And uh, you, you, you mentioned seven months. I think uh, the election is in, what, four months? Mm -hmm. and, so, and so after four months, there will probably be a readjustment with the Democrats uh, because they will, they will lose so much. And we'll see what the Republicans say about the economy. I was listening to one of the programs last night. I can't remember the economist's name. He might not even he just might have been an economic uh, commentator as opposed to an economist. But there were two other data points that he pointed to. One, consumer confidence is apparently still high and savings rates are still relatively high. Can you speak to can you speak to that? And are those useful indicators. Well, if you say we're in the midst of a recession, then the answer would be no. Go ahead. Well, the, those two indicators are actually move in the opposite direction. When consumer confidence is really high, people spend money. They don't save it. Right. When consumer confidence is low, then people are saying, well, I may lose my job next week, so I need to save money. So if people are saving money, that means that, means that the, the public understands that the economy is not in good shape. It's like also economists will point to, um, you know, the, the, uh, the good points of the economy while, the, while um, um, uh, you know, the unemployment rate being low, while workers will tell you they're, you know, they were, they're worse off than they ever were uh, because they're not working the number of hours that they want to work. And so these statistics are going in opposite directions. And uh, there's not a good, quote, economic theory to explain this. This is all political. 
Article in The Hill, Russia cuts gas through Nord Stream 1 to 20 percent of capacity. If I, you know, from the outside looking in, it appears to be now Russia says they have all kinds of technical issues and problems and things like that. It appears to me just as a layman, I don't know. This is just a crazy conspiracy theory. But I would think that Russia saying you are not going to fill your tanks for the winter and come winter, you're going to be in a real bad situation. And there's only one group of people that are going to be able to bail you out. And that's us. And the answer is probably going to be no anyway. At any rate, your thoughts? Well, I mean, the, these, uh, the Nord Stream uh, 1 um, uh, system has uh, scheduled maintenance. And uh, the, a turbine was sent from, from um, um, uh, the Nord Stream complex to Canada, to the Siemens plant in, in, in Canada, to fix it, to be returned to the Nord Stream plant to, to keep operations going. And uh, that was scheduled maintenance. It happens. It's it's happened all the time. So there was nothing unusual about that happening, except that Canada refused to send the turbine back when it was supposed to, <laughs> claiming that it would violate sanctions. So that that turbine spent about a month, if I remember, of of additional time before it got back to Russia. Well, in the meantime, another turbine is now uh, scheduled for repair, and uh, so uh, in that that turbine is is going to be sent perhaps to Canada. And if Canadians, uh, essentially U.S. and Europeans, uh, do the same thing and slow down the return of that turbine, then they have, they have only themselves to blame if, if Russia is, is uh, cutting the flow of, of, of gas because you need turbines to do that. So, of course, the U.S. and, and the U.S. Uh, and, and the EU is claiming that this is political, but, but this is scheduled maintenance. Uh, and 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 so uh, what the, what the what the uh, the the EU and the, uh, the U.S. is doing is continuously shooting themselves in the foot and expecting that the that the public will believe that this is all Russia's fault when in, when in fact uh, the um, uh, the uh, NATO uh, the EU and the and the U.S. are doing everything they can to try to sabotage the the, the natural gas process. It's it's kind of un, it's unbelievable that uh, the West is, is willing to sacrifice the, the health and safety and uh, even the comfort of its citizens to try to make a point uh, that the Russians are, are responsible for, for increasing gas prices and for the coming uh, lack of gas in the wintertime. It's, uh, they're throwing their own citizens under the bus. This reminds me, uh, it might have been Abbott and Costello, who, doctor, doctor, every time I hit myself in the head with this hammer, I get a headache. What do I do? Well, I suggest you stop hitting yourself in the head with the hammer. This makes absolutely uh, no sense. And when you read, for example, the Wall Street Journal, and they are continually trying to rationalize this irrational American and European behavior— it makes absolutely no sense. Uh, well, as long as they can continue to, to have uh, media outlets like the Wall Street Journal, I guess, propagandize, uh, perhaps the, the public will buy it. But I, I, don't think, I don't think you can fool all of the people all the time. Here, in fact, the, the Wall Street Journal writes, the twin moves demonstrate they're talking about the Odessa bombing and the cutback in, in gas through 
through Nord Stream, the twin moves demonstrated Moscow's willingness to choke supplies of essential goods in an effort to hit back at the West as it tries to punish Russian President Putin for a war that has killed thousands of people and displaced millions. So this is all Russia's fault. Well, the the, uh, the West put sanctions on Russian oil and, and gas. And uh, if, if this were really a, a weapon of war used by Putin, he would have cut that off completely. But, but he hasn't done that. He's trying, you know, the, the Russians are trying to adhere to their contracts, which include things like maintenance. And it was the Canadians who did not send the turbine back when they were asked or when they were supposed to send it back. Uh, the, Putin did not, um, you know, prevent them from doing that. Uh, there's also the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, of course, which, which Germany uh, discontinued their involvement in for no reason. Uh, this, this was before the, the, uh, the war with Ukraine uh, on the behest of, of the U.S. government. And, and, and so uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is ready to go. Uh, it, could, it could supply the gas that the Nord Stream 1 is not able to supply, but the Germans are, are not allowing that to happen. And so, again, shooting themselves in the foot. And as we get out, Canada once again being the dupe of the United States when they kidnapped the Huawei executive, uh, Meng Wanzhou. So, again, uh, you just keep following the U.S. down the rabbit hole, and that's not a very good idea. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate the analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT has a piece entitled, What is the Rules-Based International Order That Western Elites Keep Talking About? America and its allies love to invoke the code words for, you are free to do as we tell you to. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our chuckling next guest. He's an investigative journalist, analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War, Daniel Lazar. As always, Daniel, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. So President Biden, he's beating the drum that Americans will have to pay high prices for energy for as long as it takes to stick it to Russia in Ukraine. These are Putin's price hikes. A couple of months ago, when one of Biden's advisors, Brian Deese, was quizzed about the president's response to the price hikes on CNN, he replied, this is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm. Dan, the rules-based order, or the liberal order as I understand it, uh, it's the agreed-to arrangement established by the uh, victorious allies after the Second World War at the Bretton Woods Conference. They agreed upon a series of rules uh, for the international monetary system. That, that's my understanding. Uh, your, your thoughts in about going from there about uh, the Western elites are telling people you're free to do as we tell you to. 
sure. Well, rules-based order is a, is a phrase that, um, that the Biden administration has used very heavily. Um, and, uh, and Peter Beinart, a kind of a liberal uh, uh, foreign policy writer, journalist, um, had, a, had a very good piece in the New York Times um, uh, last year, in June uh, 2021, uh, in which he argued that the U.S. – the reason the U.S. is so enamored of the phrase rules-based order is that it doesn't like the term international law. Mm-hmm. International law is the body of law that has grown up uh, since world, well, since before World War II in the modern era, uh, based on certain kinds of concepts of national equity, etc. And the thing about about international law is that it's got a lot of gaps, a lot of shortcomings, a lot of contradictions, etc. But it doesn't always go America's way. Okay, mm-hmm. and. And the thing with a rules-based order is that the the Biden administration, uh, Peter Beinart argued, um, has come up with an alternative, which is something called the rules-based order, which always goes America's way. <laughs> and, and that is essentially what it means. What it means that these are rules for the running of the global economy that the U.S. makes up, the U.S. enforces, and – no one else gets a, a, a word in edgewise, and these rules always benefit the U.S. So, for example, the U.S. is not a member of the international court, and the international court actually has decided against the U.S., but those rules don't matter because they're part of something called international law. The only rules, i.e. those rules part of the, that are part of the rules-based order, are the ones that the, that the U.S. recognizes because they benefit the U.S. So in other words, America wants to have it America's way. And therefore, it imposes certain rules whose purpose is to see to it that America gets its way. And that's what the rules-based order is. We make the rules – you are free to obey them. How you know you are free to do what we tell you to do, but we are the ones in charge. You know, Beinhardt has, and you know, I don't know. They they you know uh, tar and feather him before they would allow that um, article to go in the New York Times today, which is very interesting because it's an outstanding article. But one of the things he talks about is the the kind of inherent nebulousness of the um, of the rules based order without any kind of definition, and something that I'd like to get you to comment on uh, relative to that, Danny. And that's uh, Dan, and that's this. He says. Look, the fact that it is foggy and amorphous is what is the reason that Washington likes it because they can make it mean what they say it wants to mean. You know, as the, what was it in uh, behind the looking glass? My words mean exactly what I say they mean. And um, but that's also why other countries don't like it. Now, he said that back then. Now, when you look up what happened, what's happened in Ukraine uh, with the Ukrainian crisis, where the U.S. thought that all of these countries out of fear or what it, respect or whatever, were going to side with the U.S., we see that all of the countries outside of the so-called rules-based order or that are getting beaten up by the rules-based order in the global south and developing nations and even a, a Turkey and an India are saying, eh, we don't like that. We see an opportunity to get out from under that, and we're going to take it. Dan. Yes. There, in fact, Beinart, in this very good article, uh, referred to a poll that was taken by the Alliance of, De- of Demo- 
Democracy's Foundation, a poll in 53 nations uh, in which people said that they view the U.S. as a greater threat to democracy in their country than China or Russia. So, so in other words, and the reason they view the U.S. as a threat is that the U.S., one reason is the U.S. has attached itself to this highly undemocratic concept of one nation being totally in control. One nation that accounts for about 4.5 percent of the world population. But that nation is totally in control. That is the that is the most undemocratic concept you can possibly come up with. But that is the that is the essence of the rules-based order, which the US dares to promote as the basis for global democracy. I mean, it really is a through-the-looking-glass view of the world. And, uh, and, and, and the world sees through it. The world recognizes that the U.S. is throwing its weight around in a highly improper, unjustified, and undemocratic manner. And that's the world does not like it. That's why the world is not lining up behind U.S. policy in the Ukraine. And, uh, you know, uh, America can only get its way for so long, and eventually people wise up. Different um, administrations have put their phraseology on this. I, I remember once hearing uh, Shrub, George H.W., uh, say, use the term American internationalism. Trump, of course, talked about America first. And sticking to this Beinhardt article, he says, that's not the Biden administration's view. Biden and his top advisors recognize that international legitimacy constitutes a form of power. The bad, they badly want America's allies and American voters to see America's overseas behavior as less capricious and less predatory than the behavior of America's chief rivals. They are just not willing to submit that proposition to any test other than one America writes itself. I think that's a very, very clear understanding uh, and articulation of the reality. Yes, exactly right. I mean, like, no, we're for democracy, but we're the only country that gets a vote. Um, and, 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 the, and the world sees through this. And, and it just doesn't work. I mean, at least Trump was honest I mean, America first. Everyone else go jump in a lake. At least he, at least he, he, mm -hmm. he put his finger on the problem. He expressed expressed U.S. foreign policy as it really is. But Biden, you know, wants to have it both ways. He wants to have a democratic world order and and a, a, a unipolar, you know, American based, uh, you know, America decided rules based order. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't hang together. Uh, and Biden himself is just way too stupid to see that. But other countries are not. And they can see through this whole, this whole pretense.
Well, the other thing I think, Dan, is, and here's the problem, they're holding on to a ghost. American hegemony, hegemony is gone. It's, I'll put it like this. It seems to me that the neocons in Washington have the, um, the poor judgment to believe that American hegemony still exists and that they can resist the rise of Russia and China and Iran and Venezuela, whoever else that could challenge them. The problem is they're a day late and dollar short. These countries have already risen to be powerful enough economically and militarily and politically, diplomatically, on and on and on, to resist American hegemony. So it's already passed. It's too late. So rather than deal with the fact that it's gone, they're trying on trying to hold on to something and it's already gone. Dan. Let me let me ask another question before you respond, sure. Dan. And that is to your point, Garland, about American hegemony being gone. Is it that it's gone or have American adversaries shifted to another playing field? Because militarily, we're still hard to beat. But the fight isn't military. The fight isn't military. The fight is economic. Now you've got China with its own space station. It's also diplomatic and getting allies and bringing people into your circle. So, so, so look at look at this issue, for example, with Taiwan, and and Dan respond to this because China up to this point isn't responding militarily. They're not taking the bait that America wants it to fall into. They're doing this on a whole on a, on another playing field. So, your thoughts, Dan? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, yes. I mean, I mean, like, I, yes, militarily, I guess in some ways, I mean, all those. You know, that an eight hundred and fifty billion dollar, you know, per year, you know, Pentagon budget, you know, buys a lot of fancy toys. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. those fancy toys can do a lot of damage. But it's a big world out there. Mm -hmm. And other countries have put together very formidable militaries. Mm -hmm. And 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 there's, you know, and because it's a big country, you know, America, you know, China enjoys a huge home team advantage right so so if if, if if trouble were to break out in the south south china sea you know the, the 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 advantage to china would be immense and all these fancy pentagon toys would be of extremely limited utility in that kind of distant mm-hmm. theater of war mm-hmm. now I mean, I mean it's it's no longer world war ii Right. I mean, world, you know, World and War II. I, I, was and I was, not, yeah. I was not trying to indicate that it was. All I'm saying is that America is still militarily a very formidable foe. That, that, that was my only point. Of course it is. Of course. But, but the thing is that China's a, a very a formidable, formidable foe, foe as well, depending well, on where well. you fight them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, you know, so World War II in the Pacific, the U.S. confronted Japan which was, you know, a, a really a small fraction of America's side. And, 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 and Japan had all of East Asia to itself. Um, so there was, it, was, it, was a, it was a battle between two, two imperial powers, and one was far more powerful than the other one. And, and essentially the U.S., you know, crippled the Japanese fleet in the Battle of Midway, the Battle of Coral Sea, et cetera. America mm-hmm. really brought its power to bear. But that that was 70-odd years ago, almost 80 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the world has changed. Mm-hmm. And, and China has put together a, a very powerful uh, military machine. And with this ridiculous um, uh, escapade by 
by Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> an 82-year-old woman who is, a, who is so far in over her head, she has no idea what she's doing, and she's backed by every you know, right-wing Republican in Washington. Mike Pompeo is jumping on board. John Bolton is jumping on board. Every foreign policy hawk is cheering Nancy Pelosi on. And they are walking into a buzzsaw. A, it, it, is, it is completely ridiculous. And, and, and the potential for something truly horrendous to break out is quite significant. And we've only got one minute. to, And so I, I ask you this. To what end? What's the purpose? Well, the, 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 the purpose is to reestablish American global hegemony. But as as Garland says, that is beyond reach. Okay. That moment has passed. America, you know, that moment passed in 2001, mm-hmm. 2003, when the U.S. blundered into uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And, 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 there's, and there's no bringing it back. You can't turn the clock back. And, 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 and Biden and his, his Republican uh, uh, cheerleaders are essentially flirting with disaster. They're flirting with World War III. Yes. Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in Consortium News entitled Pressure on Biden to Remove Cuba from Terror List. If anything, it is Cuba that has been the victim of international terrorism emanating mainly from the U.S., writes Medea Benjamin and Natasha Lycia Ora Banan. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's the co-founder of Code Pink and co-author of this piece, Medea Benjamin. As always, Medea, welcome back. Thank you so much. Great to be on with you. So you write, as the Cuban government celebrates the July 26th day of the National Rebellion, a public holiday commemorating the 1953 attack on the uh, Moncada barracks that is considered the precursor to the 1959 revolution, U.S. groups are calling on the Biden administration to end cruel sanctions that are creating such hardships for the Cuban people. In particular, they are pushing President Biden to take Cuba off the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Medea, I looked up the definition of state sponsor of terrorism and found that it is a designation that is applied by the Department of State. It is that the Secretary of State determines and assigns to countries that they allege to have, quote, repeatedly provided support for acts of international terrorism. I don't know. I know that Cuba has been very involved in liberation movements, anti-colonial movements around the world, but I don't know that Cuba has supported acts of international terrorism. Medea Benjamin. 
absolutely hasn't, which is why this designation is so infuriating and politically motivated. Uh, the Obama administration actually did a careful review of Cuban policy and came out saying it was not involved in any kind of terrorist activities. And the Trump administration, just to curry favor to the right-wing Cuban Americans and try to get some more votes, uh, didn't even bother to do a review uh, or to speak to members of Congress about it, just sidestepped the whole thing. And in the final days of Trump's administration, stuck Cuba back on the list. Now, Biden could have easily come in with executive order the first days of his administration and said, well, we actually did a review when I was vice president and found that Cuba was not involved in any terrorist activities. And so we're taking them off the list. Uh, instead, he hasn't done anything. And as we get closer to the midterm elections, uh, I doubt he will do anything because once again, uh, this is about votes in Florida and maybe New Jersey uh, and not about the well-being of the Cuban people. Well, and, you know, this is, it, 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 this is a terrible thing we see here. You know, we know the other year, I think it was 2015 or 16, they designated Venezuela as some kind of a special danger to the United States. We see the um, Iran uh, Republican, excuse me, I believe their uh, Republican Guard or their special military group, they're uh, designated a terrorist or organization. There are people saying, now let's designate Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism, what we see now is that this is a tool. It ha it's not even used relative to terrorism anymore. This is just a tool for the U.S. government to use to smite its enemies. Medea. Well, that's right. And it has terrible consequences. In the case of Cuba, that has already been suffering 60 years of U.S. sanctions that were increased under the Trump administration, and a tiny bit was rolled back under Biden, but very little. It means that they don't have access to the international financial institutions. Uh, big countries like Russia and Iran uh, can get around that. It's hard for them, but uh, they are strong countries with major economies. Cuba is a tiny island nation of 11 million people. It doesn't have that kind of uh, ability to these sanctions. Uh, I am here in Mexico right now, and I see that even in Mexico, which is a very friendly government towards Cuba, uh, the president just welcomed uh, the first of over 500 Cuban doctors that's, that are going to be uh, working here. Uh, but even in this case, I can't find a bank that can send money to Cuba. Uh, you can't get uh, PayPal to uh, put up a um, an account where you can pay something that goes to Cuba. You can't do a GoFundMe. You can't uh, even order books from Amazon and have them delivered to you. Uh, so there are extraterritorial uh, impact of these uh, of this um, designation that even friendly countries have a hard time getting around. You write the nonsensical rationale by Pompeo to add Cuba back to the list was that Cuba was granting safe harbor to Colombian terrorists, but those Colombian groups were in Cuba as part of an internationally recognized process of peace negotiations that the U.S., Norway, Colombia, and even Pope Francis supported. So basically, 
to a great degree, the United States is undermining to, to its own interests, or it is is at least in many instances undermining its own narrative by trying to negotiate for peace in certain areas and then declaring the people it's negotiating with as supporters of terrorism. Well, that's right. Cuba was applauded by uh, all different countries when it became a uh, mediator and a party to these peace negotiations. And now you have, in the case of Colombia, the new president that will be inaugurated in the first week of August, Gustavo Petra, who was part of one of these rebel groups. And he's saying it's time to uh, have a total peace in Colombia to put all of those decades of fighting behind us. And yet here is the U.S. uh, using the fact that Cuba has been involved in the peace process as one of the justifications for keeping Cuba on a terrorist list under now the Democratic uh, administration of Joe Biden is just shameful. Yeah, uh, it's it, 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 it's it's uh, you know pretty bad news. But there's something that may be even worse, um, and that is that Nancy Pelosi is heading for Taiwan. The um, supposedly the um, Chinese have made it very clear that they will respond. And the fact of the matter is that this could all not matter. These people are literally taking a chance of ending humanity in nuclear annihilation. I have to say this, Medea, the Biden administration is the most dangerous administration in the history of humankind. Am I overstating this? <laughs> I mean, if we all die, can you be if you're, you're nuclear war? Or am I? Go ahead. You're probably overstating it in that uh, I think under different administrations, we said similar kinds of things got us involved in this horrific war in Iraq that left so many people dead uh, and um, in the war in Afghanistan. And, you know, who knows? But uh, the, the, the truth is that Nancy Pelosi is not going with the blessing of President Biden. He is actually telling her not to go, just like the U.S. military. The Pentagon is telling her not to go. So I don't know what the heck Nancy Pelosi thinks that she is going to accomplish with this, uh, except for, yes, a tremendous antagonism against China Uh, And certainly this is not anything that the majority of people that uh, are in the Democratic Party would like to see. So Nancy Pelosi is just going off on her own and creating tremendous problems for uh, the entire U.S. and Chinese people. If, in fact, she's going and Biden doesn't want her to go to me. That makes it even worse because he's supposedly legally in charge of U.S. foreign policy. And if he's not, I mean, a president's supposed to say, oh, no, Nancy, you're and might I add this? He is in charge, officially in charge of the party. He should be able to say to her, you ain't going. That's it. And he's the commander in chief, and she's supposed to be going on a military plane so he can say nobody flies. Uh, you better there. fly American because. Uh, the 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 Air Force ain't taken yet. Yeah, Medea. Absolutely, and I think uh, if he were as opposed to his trip to her trip uh, as we would like him to be, he would do all that and just say, uh, uh, "Enough, Nancy, uh, stay home and take care of things in this country." Um, so maybe you know they're playing a double game with us, but um, and we don't know. Maybe she'll cancel her trip. Uh, it it has created such an outcry. 
And I know that uh, I am uh, spent 20 years in her district in San Francisco, and I know uh, many of my colleagues who are still living there are actually protesting outside of her office. So um, hopefully we can put up enough of a stink, and if not, uh, I think President Biden will have to account for why he wasn't able to stop her from a trip that is so uh, antagonistic, so provocative, and so unnecessary. You said that Joe Biden has said, has told her not to go. Uh, could you explain where where you've heard that? Because all I've heard from him is, well, the military is saying it's not a good idea, and I don't know much about the trip. So it, so to me, uh, is is he being too subtle with this, or have you heard him say definitively, no? And what does it say to you as a part two of that question. What does it say to you that now Mike Pompeo is on board ideologically or philosophically and trying to get on board uh, realistically and that there are now so many Republicans that are backing this foolish ploy? It says to me that we have two war parties in this country, the Democrats and Republicans, uh, that we uh, have enough of a problem with the uh, proxy war going on with Russia right now, uh, that it is quite amazing to me that both Democrats and Republicans in the midst of the U.S. spending billions of dollars to keep the war going in Ukraine uh, would even think about uh, it being a good idea for the Speaker of the House to be doing such a provocative move at this time. But we have seen in the uh, everything from both these uh, the Democrats and Republicans uh, that they uh, are putting the, cro- the China in the crosshairs and that the Pentagon, no matter who is in the White House, um, says that our greatest adversary is China. And instead of taking the economic steps to make the U.S. be friendlier towards uh, Africa, Latin America, Asia, uh, to be a competitor for the Belt and Road Initiatives, if indeed that is what the U.S. sees uh, as so threatening, uh, they are instead looking towards the military for, quote, solutions. And we know the military does not give us any solutions. They only give us death, destruction, war, and they rob us from the money we need to find real solutions to our problems. Medea Benjamin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks so much for having me on. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Popular resistance has a piece entitled, Does Economic Pain Mean NATO and the West Cut Ukraine Loose? For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. He is, of course, Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, Jack, welcome back. Always glad to join you guys. 
So the piece uh, opens last Wednesday at the Aspen Security Forum. CIA Director William Burns argued that, quote, Putin's view of Americans is that we always suffer from attention deficit disorder and will get distracted by something else. Burns thinks that Putin is wrong, but he might miss what Putin actually thinks. The Russian president may not be banking on Americans simply getting distracted, but on U.S. and European populations focusing on a broader picture, favoring their own natural national interests and measuring the domestic pain caused by Western support for Ukraine's war effort. If civil displeasure rises to sufficient levels, political support for Kiev could rapidly evaporate in Western capitals. Your thoughts, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Yeah, well, uh, Europe is the most susceptible to uh, any such development, and uh, not all of Europe at once. Uh, I think uh, if you're going to see some breaks from the sanctions and the U.S.-imposed policy uh, that the European political elites are going along with pretty much so far— uh, you're going to see it uh, probably in Italy with a change in government. Uh, of course, we're seeing it more as uh, Hungary uh, creeps towards uh, that position. Uh, but uh, before anything really changes in Europe, uh, there's going to have to be a change in the governments in Europe. And that can only occur with uh, a popular rebellion. Uh, and that has to wait upon uh, more severe economic pain coming this winter if the war continues and the sanction continues. Well, the sanctions will continue whether or not the war does or not. Uh, there's this economic war that's linked to the hot war in Ukraine, but they uh, have their different dynamics. Uh, so it's going to take some rebellion and turning over of governments in Europe uh, that's possible in Italy first, before any such thing happens. And the Europeans say, hey, this uh, American policy here uh, may be okay with our elites, but let's get rid of these elites because it isn't with us. As far as the U.S. is concerned, um, we're, we're much longer, uh, further away from uh, you know getting tired and reversing these policies because the elites in the U.S. have a uh, a stronger control over over the population and what whatever they want. Uh, even once this recession hits uh, here more deeply by the end of the year and early next year, uh, I don't think that's going to be enough to overturn it because uh, it's not a parliamentary system and uh, the elites are entrenched until 2024 at least at the presidency level, I think. Uh, but it's quite possible that if the, 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 the pain of the recession and, uh, you know, the linking to it, to this um, in incredible uh, short-sighted war policy of Biden and that wing of the capitalists in the U.S. Uh, really causes much more discontent in the U.S. You could see uh, uh, Republicans in 2024 running on a, a, an anti-war policy, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say anti-war, but uh, mismanagement of the war policy by uh, Biden, let's say. Uh, so I don't see that uh, main argument in that piece uh, really applying to the U.S. very soon, but it could apply to Europe fairly soon. Uh, we'll see this winter. I also think what we're looking at now, and I'll get your thoughts on it, is 
a fundamental change in the organization of the European economy. You know, the, the European economy, you've had Germany and Italy, particularly with large industrial um, sectors that were created based on um, inexpensive fuel, uh, inexpensive energy from Russia that allowed them to be competitive economically with, um, you know, say an India and China that has low, very, very low labor costs. Um, but the uh, energy is turned down and I don't really think it's ever going to turn back up to full volume. That model is gone. So is the Europe uh, that we see today, where 25% of the economic power comes from German industry and the German economy, is that Europe that we've known economically gone never to come back? Dr. Rasmus. Yeah, uh, significantly changed when you look uh, look out you know, beyond the short term here. As you point out, uh, the cheap energy is not there. We don't even know if Europe can obtain the energy anywhere else in the world. Um, they're going to try from the Middle East, um, but the Middle East is, is going to, you know, the Saudis and OPEC, they're going to uh, exact their costs uh, from Europe, and that higher cost of energy is going to slow their economy, no doubt. Uh, Europe was was always the weak link in the global capitalist economy, I believe. Um, and uh, uh, as important as the energy is concerned, that you point out correctly, uh, Europe is very, de- um, and especially Germany, Germany very dependent upon uh, uh, exports and imports. And a lot of that came from China and Asia. And that's going to change dramatically as, as well, because we got a, a total realigning of uh, trade patterns going on and uh, supply chains and so forth. So uh, Europe is going to pay the price for that, not just for the energy, uh, you know, cost rising. Uh, so Europe is not long term is not in a good shape. Uh, and there's also concern beginning to emerge here uh, with, uh, once again, uh, the southern um, uh, sovereign debt, southern European sovereign debt, you know, Italy and so forth, uh, Spain, Portugal, Greece, uh, that's going to raise its ugly head once again if the rates keep uh, keep rising, if the central bank ECB keeps raising rates. They know that. And they sense that, uh, that, uh, oh, you know, we better make protection here. And they passed in principle this new program to bail out the southern European banks if it arises again as it did in 2010, right? Uh, that bogeyman is not going away. Uh, it, it could very well, uh, you know, come back. So uh, Europe is is in uh, a, a lot of trouble here, uh, medium term, longer term, uh, and um, we'll 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 see what happens. But uh, uh, you know. Uh, just yesterday, I think it was the day before that this uh, uh, economist, uh, you know, mainstream economist, I don't think that much of, but there's one guy, or a few, uh, called Nuriel Rubini from New York University, who accurately called the 2008-9 crash before it happened. Uh, he came out uh, just two days ago and says, uh, uh, all this talk in the U.S. about, oh, soft landing and, oh, sh- if at worst a, sh- a shallow recession is nonsense. Uh, Really, it's going to be, and quote him, severe. We are on the cusp of a severe recession, according to Rubini, and I tend to uh, uh, agree with him. And most importantly, uh, Rubini uh, says that if it's severe, then it's going to have an eventual impact on financial asset markets. And we could see sovereign debt crises, uh, you know, in emerging markets and in junk bonds and junk loans and so forth. 
emerge. And if that happens on top of a severe real economy contraction, uh, then you got an even further exacerbation of the contraction. Um, so that's a possibility, uh, not immediate. You know, we're looking at a year, two years, probably down the road before it really impacts financial asset markets. But that's a possibility, too. So uh, it's going to take longer for the discontent to arise in the U.S. And the problem is um, the way the system is, it's got it locked up between these two wings of the corporate party of America, Republicans and Timidcrats, as I call them. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, that's the big trade-off still going on. And nothing's going to change in the U.S. till you have a true independent third party, which doesn't look like it's around the corner. TASS reports that ex-German Chancellor Schroeder arrives in Russia for talks on gas supplies. You've got um, this former chancellor. He has arrived in uh, Moscow, according to Der Spiegel. And Russian, according to sources, gas supplies via the Nord Stream pipeline will focus will be the focus of the talks. What does it mean, if anything, to you that the former chancellor, uh, Gerhard Schroeder is in Germany talking to President Putin. And what if either out of these conversations or shortly thereafter, we we start hearing discussions about turning up Nord Stream 2? Yeah, I think that's very significant that he's uh, he's going on. Schroeder's going over there. He's he's going over there to explore what kind of a a quiet one-on-one German-Russian uh, deals can be made here uh, to minimize the impact, you know, on on Germany. I don't think anything will be announced. It'll all be off the record and quiet. Mm-hmm. But uh, the fact that he's going, he's exploring some way uh, to. Uh, get around these sanctions uh, without announcing he's getting around these sanctions. As far as Nord Stream 2 announcement, uh, that would be too blatant. That would be too obvious at this point uh, to reopen that. That would uh, send uh, real red flags to uh, the U.S., uh, and the U.S. would then uh, turn the screws on Germany uh, economically, you know, not to do that. So I don't think it'll be anything with Nord Stream 2. Uh, but, uh, you know, Nord Stream 1 now has been uh, reduced to 20%. The Russians reopened after this uh, flap over the Canadian sanctions and uh, maintenance equipment. Uh, they reopened that 40%, which is what they were, of their capacity uh, of, of gas to Europe. I think uh, now they're at 20%. And uh, threatening, uh, you know, you keep sending your long range missiles uh, to Ukraine, uh, you know, we just may cut the other 20 percent. So uh, and and you see, uh, uh, you know, Hungary uh, uh, backing away from sanctions, saying even more. And now, as I said, there's something going on in Italy now with a change of government. Uh, that you may see more like a Hungarian attitude towards uh, the sanctions. So the sanctions are are beginning to weaken around the fringes uh, in in Europe. Uh, and I think the Germans are, are going over there to see what kind of a private deal that they can strike uh, with uh, with the Russians. And and we'll see how that goes. But I don't think it's going to be a Nord Stream 2 announcement. Oh, no, no, no. I, I was not trying to infer that a Nord Stream 2 announcement was imminent. I was just looking at that as further out on the timeline. And that, to your point, would be an incredible signal to the U.S. that it's lost its grip. But we have about 45 seconds left. And one of the things that Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told reporters yesterday is that a meeting between uh, President Putin and German Chancellor uh, Schultz was possible. We've got 40 seconds. 
Yeah, well, uh, the U.S. knows uh, Germany is weakening. You know, I mean, Germany, for one thing, I understand, is sitting on nine billion dollars of military aid that was supposed to go to uh, uh, to the Ukraine. So the uh, the Germans are trying to uh, walk the tightrope. Okay, and uh, I think uh, Biden and the U.S. know with this move, with this visit, that something's afoot. So uh, they're stepping in and trying to nip it in the bud. I think, uh, and that's what's behind. Uh, behind that latest uh, latest move by the U.S. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate your analysis. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. This is, to me, a very, very interesting story. Iran to grow food on a million hectares in Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela has agreed to provide Iran with one million hectares of agriculture land for food growing projects. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He's traveled extensively in the Middle East and in Latin America. His latest book is entitled Kamala Harris and the Future of America, an essay in three parts. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here as always. So on July 26th, Iran's Deputy Interior Minister for Economic Affairs praised the agricultural agreement signed between the two countries, which is part of the 20-year cooperation plan signed during the visit of Venezuelan President Maduro to Iran. Your thoughts, Caleb Maupin? Well, this seems to indicate that Venezuela is becoming stronger and, you know, overcoming some of the weaknesses that it has. I mean, Venezuela's economy is completely centered around oil. Uh, and because of that, when the oil prices dropped in 2014 and then the sanctions from the United States, you know, made it very difficult for Venezuela to import products, uh, the result was a food crisis in the country. There were food shortages. Now they created the CLAP program and they had other measures that were implemented to address that problem. But it was a clear weakness in the Venezuelan economy that made them subject to foreign attack and sabotage. When you're dependent on importing your food uh, and then you have enemies that are determined to, uh, you know, to crush your revolution, uh, they, can, they can utilize low oil prices plus sanctions to create a situation where it's hard for you to import food. So now Venezuela is utilizing its ally, the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, and trying to overcome this weakness. Uh, and uh, it's, it looks like a promising strategy. You know, Iran has a vast agricultural sector, um, and there's a lot of experience the Iranians have in building up their agricultural sector. And also, Iran is like Venezuela in that they have an oil-centered economy, but they're also subject to foreign attack and subversion and sanctions and economic warfare. And so Iran is teaching Venezuela what it's learned over the years, and Venezuela is, in their own way, helping out Iran. And it shows that anti-imperialist countries are coming closer and closer together. And this emerging alternative economy uh, that has been created by the U.S. attacks, uh, it, it's going to keep flourishing regardless of what the United States does. 
A couple of things I'd like to throw at you, Caleb. One being, you know, it, rem- it reminds me of the U.S. Um, doing all of these sanctions against Russia in 2014 and all these sanctions against Russia, and Russia started to grow food and became um, one of the top exporters of, um, of, of food in the world. In fact, the number one exporter of wheat in the world. Um, add that with, uh, you know, I've heard Michael Hudson talk about the U.S. many times in coercing countries would ensure that a country couldn't no longer feed itself and had to buy food from the U.S., and that was a manner of, co- of coercion. So it seems like that Venezuela, I mean, this is going to create jobs and things like that in Venezuela. A million hectares, that's what, two and a half, 2.7, somewhere around two and a half million acres. Um, your thoughts about all, putting all that together, uh, Caleb? Well, the thing is, um, we often talk about oil and the use of oil, which is the world's most vital commodity and how the United States and Britain dominate the world economy with oil. Um, We talk about weapons, manufacturers, and such, but food is very vital in maintaining U.S. dominance. Uh, The agribusiness giants uh, that are centered in the United States, uh, Monsanto, Kraft, others, uh, they do have dominance on the global food markets. And, you know, you look at at Central and South America, I mean, NAFTA devastated Mexico uh, because, you know, the folks in Mexico have been growing their own food since long long before Christopher Columbus ever showed up. But it was uh, because of NAFTA that, uh, you know, the domestic farming and agricultural sector of Mexico was kind of put out of business. And now Mexico has to import most of its food from the United States. And a similar thing happened to Haiti. You know, there used to be an agricultural sector in Haiti as well. But now Haiti imports most of its food from the United States. And that that U.S. agribusiness corporations, uh, you know, I mean, there's people that look into this. They say, you know, why do we have high fructose corn syrup in every every food, it seems? Well, that's because that's a U.S., uh, you know, corn that makes high fructose corn syrup is in is, is vital. And it's a U.S., uh, you know, major U.S. product. I mean, you don't grow that in other places generally. And that's a way the United States can maintain its dominance. So so food is a way that these countries have been attacked. And you know, I mean, after the fall of the Soviet Union, you gave the example of, of Russia. After the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, the Soviet Union, you had the collective farm system that had been built up by the Soviet Union that had overcome, you know, I mean, there had been malnutrition all the time. I mean, malnutrition was routine before the revolution, but it was after they built up that collective farm system in the 1930s. They finally, you know, they, they you know, developed their own agricultural sector. They weren't having malnutrition related deaths. And it was it was as a result of the fall of the Soviet Union that that Soviet agricultural system came apart. I mean, uh, you know, something like 80 percent of the farms of, of Russia, you know, went bankrupt. And so Russia was importing all its food from the United States and from from Western Europe and from other countries. And that was a weakness that Russia had. And then when the 2014 sanctions came, uh, you know, Russia was, you know, was hindered in its ability to import products like, you know, baby food and, and other, you know, agricultural exports. Uh and so as a result of that, Putin said, all right, we're going to go all in. We're going to rebuild our farming sector. And they did. And, you know, with you know, the oil revenue and the natural gas revenue, they rebuilt. And now Russia has a huge, I mean, very, very quickly, they rebuilt their agricultural sector. And, you know, Joe Biden, I've often called him the starvation president because of what he did to Afghanistan, you know, freezing their funds. And as they were facing a crisis of malnutrition and, and you know, the policies in Sri Lanka that led to low crop outputs and now, you know, these efforts to kind of hinder Russia's ability to export wheat. And, and I've called Joe Biden the starvation president, but we need to come to terms with the fact that the imperialists, you know, the Wall Street monopolists and the big banks that run the United States, they do use food as a weapon. No question about it. And so I see this move by Iran and Venezuela as a way of protecting themselves from that kind of warfare, from food warfare, which is a tactic the imperialists seem to be using in our time. 
It's also interesting to me that this is a very <clears throat> shrewd move by Iran to protect its water resources because if they're basically outsourcing a lot of their agricultural uh, needs, then it means that they don't have to dedicate the water resources to grow that food. And we know that in the midst of sanctions against Iran, against Venezuela, Iran was opening grocery stores in Venezuela. So this really seems to be a very cooperative, collaborative effort, and it benefits both countries at some of the most base levels of their needs. Indeed. And I mean, one one example of, of just the ridiculousness of all of the actions from the United States is we've seen many times that Iran and Venezuela continue to cooperate as Iranian ships head to Venezuela, et cetera. We've seen U.S. officials from both the Trump administration and the Biden administration say, well, they can't do that. They can't do that. On what grounds? Right. You, you, you've locked Iran out of the global economy. You've locked Venezuela out of the global economy. So they say, OK, well, we're going to trade with each other. On what grounds does the United States have the right to step in and say, no, you can't do that. That's not allowed. On what grounds? I mean, I mean, there, there, there's I mean, it's, it's simply it's simply uh, absurd to hear U.S. officials try and claim that Iran and Venezuela aren't permitted to get closer to each other because of U.S. sanctions. They certainly are permitted. Uh, and, you know, USA doesn't have jurisdiction in Venezuela or in Iran. And it's made a point of um, not trading with them. So on what grounds does, does the United States have the right to, to say that these kind of you know deals like we're seeing with this new food development can't go forward? There's another article. The Russian space agency Roscosmos has announced its intention to establish a Venezuela, in Venezuela a monitoring and data collection station for its GLONASS, GLONASS navigation system. And I expect that Russia and China will expand um, their technology field. That's what I'm looking to happen next, that they really work to start to expand their, the field of technology into um, developing countries, into African countries, into Asian countries. Your thoughts? Well, quickly, good. To some might add or that it's the development of technology that's really at the crux of a lot of this conflict in the first place. Yeah. Yep. Caleb. Indeed. I think that Russia is going to continue to expand its its military presence in aligned countries and that it's the same for China and that this is a result of the hostility by the United States and that, you know, if the United States is worried about, about you know, Russian military technology going around the world or, or China – increasing its military partnerships with its allied countries. Maybe they should, you know, cool off on escalating tensions in Eastern Europe or in the South China Sea. And that this is what is to be expected. And again, uh, you know, every time Russia and China make a move and, and start to expand their military presence or, you know, in terms of technology, increase their partnerships with different countries in terms of military capability or surveillance or what have you. Every time that happens, the United States declares this is like an offensive, aggressive move, ignoring, you know, the context, which is the United States increasing its military threats and, and tensions and escalations against against Russia and China. So the context is never appropriately given to us in the media. Uh, we are just warned about those Russians. And those Chinese are coming for us. But uh, if you actually look at the details of the situation, uh, they're responding to U.S. aggression. Well, it says in this piece that the station will monitor the open source signals of GLONASS, GPS, Galileo, and Baidao systems and transmit the measurement results in real time. So this is this is basically Russian GPS which to me, even though they're talking about open source signals, now we're talking about the uh, tracking and being able to position ships, 
position, monitor the positioning of ships, monitoring the position of tanks, monitoring a lot of positioning of a lot of things. And once again, once again, when 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 Russia and China collaborate on that technology, sounds like the U.S. is locked out again. Indeed. And I mean, with the position that both of those countries are in, it would make perfect sense for Mm -hmm. them to increase their cooperation around such issues. And and let me go back quickly to the uh, to the to the agricultural agriculture issue, because Venezuela and Iran collaborating at this level locks out American agribusiness. It locks out American fertilizer companies. It, it, It locks out a lot of American money. In, in these areas. And you're exactly right about that. And and that is the long-term result is that, you know, the USA kind of uses these sanctions as a way of, um, you know, kind of weaponizing the fact that they're at the center of the world economy. But if you continue to do it, you're just not going to be at the center of the world economy. And then the economy is going to emerge. People are going to grow food. People are going to feed each other. Businesses are going to start, et cetera. And the USA won't have a seat at the table. And that's going to be the long-term result. And one of the things that you and I both know, having been to Iran and eaten, their food is incredibly fresh. It is incredibly flavorful. And one of the things that I remember talking about was the fact that one of the reasons why their food is so good, why their tomatoes are so good, uh, why their squash tastes like it does is because Monsanto hasn't gotten there and ruined their soil. Indeed, yes. Uh, and, you know, you talk about genetic modification and, and other factors and that there is a much more, you know, fresh and natural and organic quality to the food being grown in, in Eurasia right now in the countries that are locked out by the United States. Kayla Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Sure thing. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's another great piece in Consortium News entitled Washington's Russian Drone Fantasy. According to the official U.S. government narrative, a desperate Russia suffering significant battlefield reversals in Ukraine, including the loss of large numbers of reconnaissance drones, while its own military industrial capacity lacks the ability to provide adequate replacements due to Russia's economic isolation, has turned to Iran for assistance. Well, what's really at play here for insight? Let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer who served in the former Soviet Union implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq overseeing the disarmament of WMD. And his most recent book is Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika. And he is the author of this piece, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. You continue, quote, our information, end quote, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan declared, indicates that the Iranian government is preparing to provide Russia with up to several hundred UAVs, 
unmanned aerial vehicles, including weapons-capable UAVs, on an expedited timeline, Sullivan said. It's unclear whether Iran has delivered any of these UAVs to Russia already. Scott, this sounds an awful lot like uh, a bunch of uh, subjective uh, uh, inference that does not seem to be backed by any type of documentation. Well, the the intelligence that has been declassified and released uh, by um, the National Security Council is um, derived from aerial images taken uh, in June and July of uh, an Iranian airbase in Kashan in central Iran, uh, where uh, a, a Russian delegation uh, was present while the Iranians um, demonstrated uh, at least two uh, types of um, of uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. One, a, uh, a, a, a derivative of um, what we call the Beast of Kandahar, a, a classified uh, a drone, stealth drone that looked a lot like the B-2 that the Iranians were able to uh, skyjack, uh, <laughs> intercept the satellite uh, link and uh, and take control of it and land it. And then they reverse engineered it and they built this uh this drone. The other one is a um, a version of what we call the Reaper drone. It's uh, an Iranian version of the Reaper. Of course, the Iranians have had access to uh, Reaper technology uh, from drones that have been downed in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and uh, elsewhere. And so these were demonstrated to the Russians. Um, Sullivan's language um, is is scary. I've been around long enough though to to read into it. Uh, uh, two things. One, they have some um, uh, communications intelligence. Uh, they've intercepted some conversations that they are now seeking to breathe life into and um, and make conform with what they've seen on the ground. And so, you know, this is where we're getting the assessment based upon these images that Russia um, is is shopping for hundreds of drones and that Iran is preparing to uh, ship them. Um, I believe that uh, the intelligence is is very wrong, and I believe that uh, any uh, expert on uh, the Russian military and uh, the Russian military industrial uh, complex as it relates to procurement uh, would agree with me. Here's the other part, you know. Uh, okay, this is a discussion that to me can't be removed from the whole what's going on. I'll put it like this. Let's say for the sake of argument for a minute that what they were saying was all true. Russia's running short of drones and they need them from Iran or whoever the heck, whatever, right? That's the equivalent of me watching some guy who's got another guy on the ground, pinned to the ground, beating him in the face saying, yeah, look at this guy. His knuckles are bleeding and he's going to get a sore elbow from beating that guy in the face. He's winning the fight. So in reality, all of this is fluff. Russia is in the process of winning. Even if they didn't have a single drone left, you're talking about drones and they're pounding people with artillery and overrunning their positions. Scott. Well, what's what's interesting, I mean, A, you're you're 100% correct, but what's interesting is when you say they're pounding them with artillery, um, you don't want to know what makes the artillery so accurate? Drones. You know, the ones that they don't have. Um, you know, the, the, the Orion drone, which they, they apparently don't have. Well, the Orion drone is dominating the airspace over the battlefield and uh, is being used by the Russians with great effect to hunt down 
uh, Ukrainian artillery, Ukrainian command posts, Ukraine. Uh, every single day, the Orion's out there selecting targets that are being destroyed uh, by the Russian um, by the Russian artillery. Uh, I don't know where Jake Sullivan gets his notion that uh, that you know Russia has a drone shortage. I, I know that the British, um, you know, British intelligence um, put forward a very speculative assessment in uh, in May about the uh, potential for a Russian drone shortage. Not not that they said there was one. They're saying there was the potential for one because they assessed that Russian military industry wasn't capable of producing enough to meet the requirements of the battlefield. Well, it's July now, and there's nothing but Russian drones flying over the battlefield, selecting targets for destruction. Uh, so, again, the United States is so far removed from reality, and it's not just the Orion drone that's out there, they have specialty drones. They have a drone that does a cell phone intercept. So every time the Ukrainians get on the cell phone to take the, the TikTok selfie, uh, the Russians are pinpointing that and hitting it with artillery. And then they have this loitering, loitering drone, a kamikaze drone made by the Kalishnikov factory, by the way, um, you know, the, 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 man, the, the designer who produced the AK-47. Uh, that factory is producing this loitering drone that flies over uh, the battlefield. It's capable of artificial intelligence-related uh, targeting, which means that you tell it what to look for, you send it over the battlefield, and then it finds it and it kills it. Uh, no, the Russians are, you know, they don't have any drones, apparently, except every day their drones are dominating the battlefield. And they're dominating the battlefield, and this is a very important point, using Russian drone technology and Russian doctrine related to that technology. It's not just about flying the drone. It's how the drone communicates and uh, interfaces with the rest of the military that makes it efficient. You do not unplug Russian drone technology and plug in Iranian drone technology and get the same level of proficiency. How do I know? Hey, back in 1987, I was one of the guys that was working on introducing the Pioneer uh, drone to the United States Marine Corps. I was there at the birth of that technology. I know what I'm talking about. So you have National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan making these statements. You've got CIA Director William Burns echoing the assessments, and you write, the announcements by Sullivan, Kirby, and Burns appear to be part of an ongoing information warfare campaign being waged by the U.S. and its allies on behalf of Ukraine, where, according to NBC News, the National Security Council deploys declassified intelligence even when confidence in the accuracy of the information wasn't high. And that I know, Scott, that takes us back to, and we just talked about this yesterday, that uh, April 6th, 2022 article from NBC News, in a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. So folks need to continue to understand and to question to the nth degree the information they're being given because it has been admitted by the administration that this is a disinformation campaign that's being waged by the Biden administration on the American people. Absolutely. Look at the timing of this most recent uh, report about the drones. Uh, it was made after Joe Biden fumbled his, uh, his great tour in the Middle East 
And right before Vladimir Putin was getting ready to launch his own um, very impressive meeting in Tehran with the uh, Iranian leadership and the Turkish leadership. Wait a minute. Um, wait a minute. Why do you so, why do you say Biden fumbled the fumbled the trip? Well, what did he accomplish? He was humiliated in Saudi. Oh, well, Arabia. he didn't accomplish anything. But 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 go ahead. Why <laughs> why, why was this a fumble? Go ahead. It was a fumble because it, it didn't. It, you know, basically, the president of the United States, you know, demeaned himself, debased his, the, the the American people and the American nation, and left the Middle East without accomplishing anything. Meanwhile, Putin is getting ready to leave Moscow to go to Tehran, where he, among other things, is going to sign a forty billion dollar economic. Uh, joint development uh, project with uh, the Iranians. Talk about, you know, how to resolve the situation in Syria. Um, you know, real diplomacy, real national security, real uh, economic um, uh, outcomes. And uh, the United States knew that this was coming up. They knew what Putin was getting ready to tee up. And if you go back to that NBC um, report, the reason why they released this information, they said, was to get inside Putin's head. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so they released this as if Vladimir Putin suddenly in Moscow is going to go, oh, my God, they say I'm going to be driving, buying drones, but I'm not buying drones. I'm not buying drones. Am I driving, buying drones? I'm not buying oh, blah, blah. And now he's confused and he can't function. Putin didn't care. He didn't lose any sleep because Putin knows what the truth is. Putin knows that his forces are working quite well uh, and that his drone technology is sufficient to the task that it's been assigned. Um, is there some sort of cooperation going on between Russia and Iran? I believe there is. Um, I believe Russia is very interested in two things. One, gaining access to the American technology that Iran has recovered and integrated in, because at some point in time, Russia may go face to face with that same technology in the form of actual American drones. So, yeah, let's get used to it. Uh, but two, um, Russia has a very efficient military industrial complex. See, I think the story is that Russia is telling the Iranians, hey, we'll build these drones for you in Russia. Why do I believe that? Because that's the same offer that uh, Putin just made to Erdogan about the, uh, about the Turkish drones that Turkey's been selling to uh, Ukraine. Putin said, hey, you know, we can build them here in Russia, build them better. Why don't we have a joint manufacturing um, uh, agreement? I think that's what's going on. This is about Russia needing these drones in emergency fashion. They don't. They have their drones. They're working. They're winning. I think this is about Russia expanding uh, the cooperation with both Iran and Turkey uh, to include joint projects related to drone uh, production that will have an impact on the region down the road. But right now in, uh, in, in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, you're 100% right. Russia's got them on the ground, is pounding the dog poop out of them. And, uh, you know, you, you can spin it any way you want, but it still spells out blood and teeth of the other guy on the mat. And the guy's going to be tapping out sooner rather than later. Uh, last thing I want to ask you about, I'm reading, Fighter Jets Will Defend Pelosi If She Visits Taiwan Report. I'm wondering if we get out of the Biden administration alive at this point, Scott Ritter. Look, this is this is foolish. China's contemplating uh, establishing a no-fly zone over Taiwan uh, to prevent uh, Pelosi's plane from landing. Uh, this is really dangerous stuff. Uh, that plane could be shot down. There could be a dogfight with American planes being shot down, Chinese planes being shot down. Um, and then China's just going to basically uh, do to Taiwan but what Russia's doing to Ukraine. 
wipe it off the face of the earth, eliminate it as a modern nation state, and in the process, humiliate the United States and its allies. The danger with that humiliation is uh, that may include the sinking of some um, capital ships, uh, American ships, aircraft carriers, ships in the carrier battle group uh, that could result in many thousands of dead Americans. And I don't know what the United States does. I don't know what a Biden administration does when suddenly they in, in, in an hour we've lost five ships, 12,000 men. What do you do? Let me add this, Scott. And at the same time, we're in a, quote, proxy war with Russia and a hot war with China. And the United States has done what no president did before, what every president has avoided, started a uh, hot war with both nuclear powers. Yeah. And it's a war we can't win conventionally. Um, and I'm very concerned that there are people that will tell the president that we need, if, if, if we lose a ship, if Pelosi's plane is shot down, that we need to make a nuclear demonstration. Um, and, and, and at that point in time, it just becomes absolute insanity. And the world, I, I think I've, I've said it before. I may have even said it on this, this, this program. My biggest fear isn't what's happening in, in Europe. Russia's going to win that war hands down. It's not going to go nuclear. Uh, it, there's no danger of that going nuclear. There's a huge danger that we're going to have a nuclear conflict before this year ends uh, in the Pacific because the Biden administration is stupid and weak and has nuclear weapons. And when you put all of those together, uh, bad things happen. Nancy Pelosi will hopefully stand down. Hopefully the president uh, and the military will tell her, uh, you're going to die because that's what's going to happen to her. She is going to die. Her plane will be shot down or destroyed on the ground. She's not coming home from this one. China's not playing games. They don't bluff. And if China says we're going to establish a no-fly zone over Taiwan so Pelosi's plane can't land, I will bet all my money on the following fact. Pelosi's plane isn't going to land in Taiwan. It may land in the sea outside of Taiwan, but it ain't landed on the ground. <laughs> so let me, to that point, and we're running long, we got about 45 seconds, let me, let me ask you this. If they don't shoot it down, if they force it to land, do they force it to land in Japan? Do they force it to land in South Korea? Do they force it to land in China? Because if they force it to land in China, then that could be considered an act of war because you've now kidnapped a secretary of, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Speaker of the House. I don't think they're going to force it down. I think they're going to shoot it down. Oh, damn. Um, first okay. of all, the plane's going to have a military escort. The uh, chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff made it clear that there will be United States fighters escorting this plane. So that means there's going to be a dogfight. That means that everything's going to be shot out of the sky. Uh, we are, <laughs> you know, man, it's like me stepping in the ring with Mike Tyson. I'm going to get the dog poop beat out of me. Mm -hmm. Okay, end of story. The United States is stepping in the ring. We're going on their turf. Mm -hmm. We're playing to their strengths. Um, why we think we can get away with this, I don't know. Hopefully, somebody's going to tell Pelosi, you're not coming home from this one, and it's going to lead to a major war that we probably can't win. Okay. Maybe that'll get through her adult brain, and she might realize that the right thing to do is not go to Taiwan at this point in time. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that, that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Asia Times has a piece entitled, China Steals Space Race March with Lab Module Launch. The space station called the Heavenly Palace is one giant step closer to completion, while state media trumpets China is leaving U.S. in its cosmic dust. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So China's space laboratory module has successfully been launched into orbit and has docked on the under-construction Tiangong Space Station, the China Manned Space Agency said on Monday. Chinese media said uh, when Tian's successful docking was an important milestone for China's space station project while trumpeting that China is leaving the United States in its space race wake. Your thoughts on uh, on all of these developments and particularly now, of course, the United States will see this as competition. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think the first thing to comment is that China is going from strength to strength in its space program. And that's just a testament of its general technological uh, capacity. Uh, you know, to do these kinds of things are, you know, the scientific equivalent of, you know, a triple backflip on a, um, on a high wire. And, you know, we saw that they did, uh, they sent, uh, a spaceship to the far side of the moon and then they landed a rover in one shot, uh, on Mars. And now this. So clearly they are, not only are they investing, but they're succeeding, uh, with flying colors. And, you know, once again, I hate to bring up that term Sputnik moment, but, you know, this is another Sputnik moment where the U.S. sees itself trailing and China pulling out far ahead. And uh, I'm afraid that there's not a whole lot that we can do about it except hyperventilate. And it also appears to me that the U.S. has taken the um, the Tanya Harding approach. Basically, if I can't beat him, I'll take a lead pipe and hit you in the knees. I mean, it's just kind of a knuckle dragging ape kind of way of looking at the world that says they are technologically advancing. Gee, should we try to technologically advance to? Nah, we'll try to grab them and drag them down in the hole with us. It's uh, pretty frustrating being here in America, seeing what's happening with our educational system, seeing China graduate all these. STEM students as the U.S. preys on its own student and leaves them in, in debt for the rest of their lives, it's no wonder that we fall behind technologically. KJ? You're absolutely correct. You know, uh, this is a long-term result of, you know, tremendous investment in education and in STEM. And as you point out exactly, you know, in the past four decades, the U.S. has gone neoliberal on its education, that is, it's been exploiting students to make money off of them, but offered them nothing really in terms of a meaningful education, certainly not in STEM. At the same time that the Chinese have been investing tremendously, they graduate, you know, three to four times the number of engineers that we do. And go to any graduate school in science or technology in the United States, and you'll see that three-quarters of the grad students are foreigners. So the U.S. is not engaging, it's not developing its indigenous talent, and at the same time, it's losing the race to, uh, you know, to China and to other countries. And at the same time, and this is also important, it is making, China, uh, it is making the United States 
incredibly inhospitable for Chinese scientists and engineers by hounding them, you know, into the ground. And so they're leaving or not coming. And so all of these factors combine, uh, you know, to to show that, you know, quote unquote, the Sputnik moment that happened in 1957, you know, really was just, uh, you know, a, a little blip. And since then, or at least since the 1970s, the U.S. has simply been uh, eating its sea corn, destroying its educational system, and now this is the result that we have. And another element to this also is that the the privatization aspect of this as well. The United States, to a great degree, has outsourced what was for years in the purview of NASA and has has turned to the private sector, such as Elon Musk's SpaceX, instead of making this a focus of government, United States government investment. And so, again, this is showing uh, China as well as Russia and their government in investment is paying off much greater dividends than turning to the private sector and, ex- and expecting same results from the private sector. This is exactly correct. The privatization, not only of the educational system, but of scientific enterprises itself is the problem. And once again, you know, if we think of you know, the Apollo program or other large-scale ventures, we know that when you do that kind of blue sky research and ambitious scientific project, there are all kinds of residual ripple effects that happen. For example, you know, the, the biro, the ballpoint pen came out of that uh, research. But uh, by privatizing it, you're making sure that first that anything that is gained in that process is highly profit driven and therefore it does not have that broad based uh, you know, approach. And secondly, because it's privately funded, it also that knowledge and that information also gets enclosed and then it doesn't have a general uh, social benefit. And so all of these, these things, uh, you know, and plus the fact that, you know, it's a mistake to think that private enterprises can do these things better than public enterprises. I mean, the proof of the fact is that China has the Chang'an uh, you know, uh, working right now, and Elon Musk is a lot of hot air. And so, you know, this shows a, a, a fundamental misconception uh, in understanding knowledge, production, and science, uh, scientific research. And, you know, once again, you know, poor choices and this capitalistic approach to everything, uh, at the end, it, it, it does not lead uh, any real results. The other thing we find is that Russia is backing out of their um, backing out of of their uh, project, In, the with, International Space right, Station, uh, with the with the U.S. led by the U.S. with the International Space Station, and this uh, the International Space Station needs Ru- Russian technology. China is now saying, "Yes, we'll work with other countries. They can use uh, they can use our space station. They can come here, uh, not you, the United States, and everyone else." I see these two countries, Russia and China 
not just coming together, but being driven together out of survival necessity because of the, um, uh, the, the, the multi-pronged onslaught by the United States to creating a technological monster. If you look at right now, militarily, with the S-400, S-500, and et cetera, um, Russia is clearly the technological leader in the world. You see these two countries coming together, and they're going to, they're going to have a, uh, you know, a technology uh, boom uh, that I can see the United States not cooperating and being an adversary, getting left behind in the dust and, and, and suffering as a consequence. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And they are being driven together. And we can already see the blowback in the sense that the U.S. is trying to isolate and uh, exclude China. Certainly, uh, the International Space Station, remember, China was excluded from participating in that deliberately. And so what did they do? They built their own uh, space station. And now they're going to invite Russia to join them. And as they do that, as China and Russia cooperate, you know, they're going to go from strength to strength. Russians have tremendous engineering, math, and science capacities, as do the Chinese. And when they work together, we, we will see uh, synergies that will make, you know, the S-400 or the hypersonic or the, you know, the, 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 the next generation of AI, um, you know, that will pale in comparison, in my estimate, because... There are tremendous efficiencies and tremendous synergies that will arise. And one of those, the I guess is S-Mike's seven nanometer chip process, a wake-up call for U.S. reports of a China chip-making breakthrough are behind the curve, but U.S. sanctions are increasingly too little, too late, and out of date. This is from Asia Times. So this is another significant indicator that United States sanctions have pushed technology, uh, in improvements in technology, and pushed them away from the United States. Yes. The, you know, the basic assumption behind that is the notion that the Chinese only copy things. And the moment you shut them out of the system, then you know, they'll be reduced to third-rate penury. <laughs> well, that's not true. Um, you know, the Chinese are not supposed to be able to do seven nanometer chips. You know, they expected that this would take them over a decade to catch up. But the Chinese leapfrogged two generations of chips. Uh, and they did this even without the, you know, extreme ultraviolet lithography missions that they were supposed to use. So they were able to, you know, use the DUV lithography. And now they're creating these, uh, you know, seven nanometer chips. They will continue to develop them. Um, they're currently being used for crypto mining, that's my understanding, but they will rapidly scale up to uh, other applications. And it's, as you point out, it's just more proof of the fact that when you try and enclose science and when you make the wrong assumptions about your competitors, uh, all you get is blowback. And uh, this is a good example of this. The U.S. chip industry will suffer terribly, as will Samsung and, uh, and the other uh, chip manufacturers, because China not only now is starting to build its indigenous chip capacity, but it also produces a lot of the raw materials that chip makers like Samsung will be using. On that point, South Korea right now is balking at joining uh, a U.S., Japan, Taiwan uh, you know, chip 
consortium because they're afraid exactly of this, that it will actually uh, damage them more than it will advantage them. Uh, I did want to get, we got two minutes left. I, I did want to get your thought on the latest things uh, coming regarding the Pelosi trip. Now, you know, we've got people saying they want to go along with her. And now there's some thoughts of, you know, will they put her on a ship and bring her from Okinawa? Will there be um, uh, 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 planes and et cetera? It, it just sounds like a crash that is about to happen that really shouldn't happen. And, uh, and uh, it, it has the potential for, uh, let's just say, extinction level um, conflict. Your thoughts? We got about a minute and a half. You're absolutely correct. Now, if somebody needs a ship or a jet escort or, you know, some kind of huge, massive uh, production to go somewhere, something that they could do with a simple Zoom call, then you have to ask yourself, is this really a good idea? You know, you could stay home and eat deluxe ice cream from your luxury, uh, you know, freezer, or you can set the conditions to, for the beginning of World War III, which is the right thing to do. Clearly, uh, Pelosi and all of her bankers are not thinking straight, and I include Will Connor uh, among these people. Well, KJ No, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.